Food can be thought of as pretty mundane stuff. It's just the stuff we eat, right? Simple, simple enough. And if that's the case, then to think about it theologically, well, that would be a waste of time. Doesn't seem like it would be very important. I'd suggest otherwise for us this morning. Food is at the very center of the biblical narrative. Just think about it with me. Where would our faith's foundation be without that delectable and tempting apple? Or the unleavened bread of Passover? Or the provision of manna in the wilderness years? Or Joseph's wheat sustainability project during the famine? Or the Purim feast, hard won by Queen Esther? Or even Daniel's famous diet? That landed him in the lion's den. It's central. Just try and reconstruct Jesus' ministry without water to turn into wine. Minus the fish he needed to multiply to feed the thousands. No fish, in fact, to be caught on the other side of Simon Peter's boat. No bread to be broken for the disciples to recognize the risen Christ in their midst. And no supper, period to be shared with tax collectors, the Pharisees, or the disciples. In fact, no supper, even when it was the last one, the very basis of our sacrament. It's not quite the same story without the food, is it? Jesus doesn't just invite us to the table. He puts food on it. And that food is for our bodies, And it's also for our souls. So when this Corinthian community threatens fracture about what meat they can and can't eat, we should pay attention. It's about food. And food is that stuff that we eat, sure. But it points to who we are. The Corinthians, they aren't arguing about whether to shop at D'Agostino's or Whole Foods. They are in heated debate because the answer to their quandary, it will define who they are. And more importantly, it will define whose they are. These folks are Jews, and they're following Jesus, and they live in this Roman-occupied city of Corinth. And as occupied and marginalized people, they are conscious of being watched. They're conscious of being vulnerable. So in the heart of that city, economically, socially, spiritually, the heart of that city was the temple. And it was like, for us, the bank, the pub, the club, the church, and city hall all kind of rolled into one. And if you wanted to be in any way a part of that Corinthian society, you went to the temple. If you didn't go, you were antisocial or a nobody. And here's where our story for the day and the particular problem of eating food for the Corinthians comes into play. One of the ways that the temple functioned, it was to promote, to process, and then, of course, to profit off of sacrifice rituals to the Roman gods. In order to curry the favor of those gods, a citizen, they went to the temple and they bought an animal. They bought it there. And there it was slaughtered, butchered, cooked, and shared between the gods and the worshiper. Now, the temple regulated every single stage of this industry. And, of course, 
funneled the profits into local and state occupation. So that leftover meat from the sacrifice, called idol meat by Paul, was dealt out in a very strict order of social hierarchy. So if you'll bear with me through the boring history lesson, it goes like this. The priests ate first, of course, and then the rich and elites, and then the household heads, and next were women, and finally children. Now, if you were a slave, you were never assured that you would get any meat, only when your household head brought it for you and it was off-site. You get this picture. Status and power, they pervade this process through which idle meat was produced. So buying the meat meant you bought into this structure and what it represented, even inadvertently. The cultural and ethical implications, they were just really hard to stomach for these Jesus followers. The spiritual consequences were even harder to contend with. What God do you bow down to and offer your sacrifice for? In this system, the sacrifice valued and it validated the rule of the Roman gods of the heaven and of the Roman God on earth, Caesar. So this Jesus-following Jew group didn't acknowledge either one. The question was what to do. On the one hand, the text tells us, some folks thought, well, it shouldn't really matter if we eat it. They knew that there were other gods out there, but they weren't their own. So by that reasoning, they could eat the meat and not worry. The idols had no bearing on their lives. Paul agrees halfway. He says, you don't live in isolation. You live in community. And some can make this distinction, but others can't. And then there's this larger Corinthian community to think about. Folks can't mind-read a Jesus follower's internal ethical dilemma and reasoning. All they see is another person biting on and taking what they could get from this sordid structure and oppressive rule. You're part of the system that you take in. Now, this dilemma, it can seem pretty out there to us, really far away, because our lives, they aren't monitored so closely by an occupying government. And our communities, they're stratified, sure, but not in any way like what we see here. And the empire, well, it's already consumed our religion, Christianity, so we don't have to fear our beliefs being exposed. And yet, if we focus on the message, there's a lot for us to learn. We eat, as it turns out, a lot more than food. That's what Paul is trying to get out to this Corinthian body. He wants him to see this, and we need to consider it too. Paul could just as easily be asking us, what are you gobbling up? What's on the plate that's fixed just for you? How have the systems at work in our world and in our lives plated up perception, expectation, ambition, and identity for you and made it look like nourishment? What narratives concocted by these idols are you unthinkingly taking in? Now, we are told by powerful idols of this world that 
Maybe a lack of gun safety laws has nothing whatsoever to do with the spate of violent acts unfolding before us. Other powers that be are actively working to make us believe that black people are just more prone to criminal behavior. The idols of our society want us to take in the idea that climate change, in spite of comprehensive, peer-reviewed, scientific consensus, is a myth of our own making and should not be heeded. Then there's a rash of other idols who work on the insides of us, and not just in these societal systems and subtleties. They want us very badly to believe that to be useful or to be beautiful, we should be thin, white, able-bodied, young. There's no end to the amount of idols and altars in the world. They're waiting for us to sacrifice our divine spark and our intellect, too. So consider what unique recipe an idol has cooked up for you. To get at this essential and important question, I think it will help If we think about our consumption as a response to what we believe that we lack, what drives us to the table set before us? Then we can figure out what we're trying to fill up on. Frederick Buechner writes, We don't live by bread alone, but we don't live long without it. To eat is to acknowledge our dependence both on food and on each other. It also reminds us of other kinds of emptiness that not even the blue plate specials can touch. We all feel empty in one way or another, and we all yearn to be filled and to be fulfilled. And lots of things out there vie for a way to answer our emptiness. But in our rush to banish the hunger pains in our spirits, we eat what's said in front of us. Paul reminds us, along with the Corinthian community, to stop and think about the implications of our choices. And when we do, we might find out that what is being offered to us, as tempting as it may be on first sight and thought, It won't eliminate the emptiness inside us, and it might not be all that healthy to begin with. We need to question our source of nourishment and be a tad more discerning in the palate of our lives. Something set on my table these last few weeks and months, and many, many others, something I've been struggling to reject, is a certain narrative that's being constructed for what it means to be a woman. Not that it's ever been easy to navigate womanhood, mind you. But without a full and complete rejection of all print media, radio, television, internet, and social media, it's impossible to avoid the barrage of stories of sexual predation, intimate partner violence, workplace harassment, campus assault, and more. The surfacing of story after story can start to shape the image that we as women have of ourselves, our own pain, and that of our sisters, wives, friends, and neighbors. It can begin to block out any 
other sense we have of ourselves beyond victimhood. And when we feel threatened, we are more likely to eat and ask later. Roxane Gay, professor and author, writes about a woman simply walking down the street. She narrates the typical thought process for us. It goes like this. She tries to walk not too fast, not too slow. She doesn't want to attract any attention. She pretends she doesn't hear the whistles and the cat calls and lewd comments. Sometimes she forgets and leaves her house in a skirt or a tank top because it's a warm day and she wants to feel warm air on her bare skin. Before long, she remembers. She keeps her keys in her hand, three of them held between her fingers like a dull claw. She makes eye contact only when necessary, and if a man should catch her eye, she juts her chin forward and makes sure the line of her jaw is strong. When she leaves work or the bar late, she calls a car service, and when the car pulls up to her building, she quickly scans the street to make sure it's safe to walk the short distance from curb to the door. Sound familiar? With all of the effort it takes to project strength, independence, and unflappability, we can become consumers of this narrative that says we are powerless, we are dependent, we are unable to achieve. And if we are not careful, we will fill up and eat this lie and dish it out to our daughters, our nieces, and our girlfriends, right along with our sons, our nephews, and our boyfriends. It makes it all the more difficult to send the medium-rare order of patriarchy back to the kitchen. And it's harder to refuse when opting out of this system makes you somehow a shrew, or a whiner, or just a bitch. But we can refuse. We only need identify what it is we think we are dependent on or in need of to be able to determine whether we want to eat or not eat. This week, New York Times op-ed reporter, Lindsay, sorry, writer, Lindy West, wrote a piece called Brave Enough to be Angry. I recommend it to you in full. She writes about coming into her own sensibility as a woman. She writes this. I did not call myself a feminist until I was nearly 20 years old. My world had taught me that feminists were ugly and ridiculous, and I did not want to be ugly and ridiculous. I wanted to be cool and desired by men because even as a teenager, I knew implicitly that pandering for male approval was a woman's most effective currency. It was my best shot at success, or at least safety, and I wasn't sophisticated enough to see that success and safety bestowed conditionally aren't success and safety at all. They are domestication and implied violence. She explains the process that Paul takes his own people through. Idols depend, as it turns out, on our desperation. They want us low and worried and hopeless. We will bow lower and faster that way. When a table demands that posture within us, we can tell it's an altar to avoid. 
We can tell other stories. We can sit at other tables. We can find food that will sustain us and not drain us. We can see through the gods of our world that deem us unworthy and demand sacrificial acts that deny either our or our neighbor's humanity and sacred worth. There are other gods at work, but they are not ours. Still, they operate freely and openly and with great success. They cook up systems that subjugate and deflate some folks in order to assure others of the power and of the advancement and acceptance. The easiest way to spot them is to know that their delicacies depend on stripping others of dignity. Those aren't our gods. We can remind ourselves whose table we ultimately sit at and what is offered us there. Our God offers us edible and spiritual nutrition. It's readily available to us if we don't fill up on the alternative. There is a seat at God's table, and there at that table, our needs are met, not our greeds. There at that table, we will hunger no more.